Father God, Lord, I thank you, God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the people here in this place, God. I thank you for your promises to us, God. God, I thank you that as we've sung there, God, that as the seas rage around us, Lord, that you're in control, that you are Lord, Lord, that you are Lord of all, that in the storm you are Lord of all, God, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is working in our lives, it's working in this place, it's working in this church, God, as we follow you, as we follow your lead in this place, God. Lord, I pray for 2019, God, that you would take each each of us on a journey, God, deeper and deeper into you, that today we would leave this place on a different level in a different place than when we came in, God, with a bigger faith, a bigger hope in you for our lives and for our world, God. Lord, that we would leave this year in a completely different place, God, that we would be leaving Sai Kung and Hong Kong as a church family going into 2020 in a completely different way than we're entering into it, God. Lord, we pray for salvations and people coming to faith in you this year. Lord, we pray for families and lives completely transformed and turned around, God. Lord, we pray for just the purposes of God, your purposes on people's lives to take root and grow and flourish in a new, more full and awesome way. Lord, I pray for the storms that we are carrying into 2019, God. Lord, that here at the beginning of the year, Lord, we would make you our Lord. We would make you our captain in that. In your mighty name. Amen. So Sarah and I don't actually coordinate to do with songs and stuff like that. So it's quite amazing because the title for today is The Storm Captain. We've been going through... Acts for most of last year, apart from a few kind of series through, through the year, but we've been going through Acts and we're quite near the end of Acts now. We're in Acts 27 and it's this amazing chapter of a sea voyage. Just to kind of catch you up to date of whereabouts we're at, Paul, kind of Acts 25, 26, Paul has been in Caesarea. He's been in prison for a couple of years there and some of his guys, they've stayed around, they've stayed with him, but under one of the trials he's facing, under Festus, he calls out and he says that he demands to be judged by Caesar. It's one of the rights he has as a Roman citizen. And so after doing another audience the next day to King Agrippa, he's there for a little while before he can be sent off. And he's sent off with the centurion, Julius, and he's sent off to Rome. And that's the story that we're looking at today, Acts 27. But he doesn't get to Rome in Acts 27. The story kind of goes awry. His journey doesn't quite go as planned. We're going to be looking at that today. Acts 27, this real nautical adventure. It's this high octane seafaring, pirates of the Caribbean, but in the Mediterranean, no pirates, kind of quest. There's raging seas, there's a storm, there's a shipwreck. So we're going to go through that and see what lessons we can learn from Paul's life, but also see what lessons and challenges we can learn for the voyages of our lives today. I know I love maps, and my dad loves maps. I'm sure lots of you guys love maps. So they're here, okay, Caesarea Maritima, they're here. And I'm just gonna read, we'll keep dropping back to this map, but so you can see, this is the general route that they're following, okay. 
chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. Some scholars, they believe that this guy, the centurion Julius, that he was actually part of the group of people when King Agrippa heard Paul speak to them in previous chapters, that he was there, a part of that great gathering of noble people and he would have heard Paul and they think because he's actually very kind he's very giving very generous to Paul you'll see that in a later verse that he'd actually met him first there verse 2 it says we boarded a ship from Adramantium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia okay that's western Turkey they're not getting any dim sum or anything from there they're not coming this way they're going up the west coast of Turkey and we put out to see Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Just one of those throwaway verses, but Aristarchus, I just want to touch on him a second and to encourage you guys, when you read these things, we don't really think about him, but he's not a random guy. He's quite an important guy. He's important to the whole of the early church and a lot of Paul's apostolic journeys. He doesn't have such a Western name like Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know. It can be an easy guy to kind of trip over or kind of forget about, but he's so much part of that story. He's from Thessalonica. He's one of Paul's traveling companions. Remember way back when Paul is in Ephesus and there's that big riot and they drag people into the amphitheater there. He was one of the guys dragged in. When Paul decides, when he's in Ephesus and decides, I'm going to go around all of um, Macedonia and Achaia with some guys and collect this massive financial gift that had never, ever been done before, that kind of international giving to take back to Jerusalem for the church there, for the poor there. He's the Macedonian representative. He's the guy going with them. And it seems like he's waited in Jerusalem for those two years or in Israel for those two years whilst Paul's been in prison. He turns up in letters to the Colossians in the book of Philemon. He's a key guy. Paul and he are close. Why am I saying it? I'm saying it because Paul isn't just like by himself as a prisoner on this boat. And if you think of the situations they're going to face, these storms, he's got people around him he loves. And it's not just Aristarchus. Aristarchus joins us. Who's us? It's Paul and it's Luke, because Luke's writing it. When you read any of the Gospels, read whether they're writing us or they. It makes a big difference. Whether you can imagine, you can see, okay, Luke is there boarding this boat. He's not writing about something he's heard about. He's writing about something he's living in right there in that moment. Okay, verses three to eight. The next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made a slow headway for many days. Things aren't going to plan. We made a slow headway and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. Then the wind did not allow us to hold our course. We sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lasea. So they've had a pretty rough time of it. They sail up here. They come to Myra where they meet this Alexandrian this Egyptian ship and then they head off here aiming to go over 
to Rome, but then they're all pushed off and have to come and end up having to come south because of the wind south of Crete. If these these areas, remember Paul, this is his first missionary journey. This is where he's first gone. He knows these waters. And then when they're in Myra and they board that Alexandrian ship, it's not just a little ship. Alexandria, Egypt at the time was this, it's the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. It's where all the grain or majority of the grain and goods are coming out of. It's not some like little sailing boat. It's a big cargo ship. There's 276 people on the ship. It's a serious ocean-going commercial ship. The merchant owners, just to try and get your head in what it would have looked like going off, it's not a ferry, the merchant owners owning the ship, owning the grain and all the other goods and stuff that are on board, they have got a fortune wrapped up in this. Potentially, you know, if it goes well, they'll make you a fortune. If they lose it, they could lose a huge chunk of their wealth. So they're heading to Rome to sell in the big city, the capital of the world really at that time. And the conditions mean that they end up coming to Crete and they have to go around. And we find ourselves in this place called Fair Havens. Funny name, all of the others have quite foreign names. That one sounds like a place you could find in the UK or something, but Fair Havens, it probably had a different name at the time. And Luke continues to write and he writes this verse 9 to 12 he says much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement the day of atonement's yom kippur that's the end of september beginning of october to kind of get an idea or a picture of the changing seasons it's going into winter so paul warned them men i can see that our voyage is going to be dangerous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot, the captain, and the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. This passage, it's an interesting passage because we see this little example of wisdom versus experience. Paul, he's not a sailor, he's not been at sea for the last two years, but he's right. He's the inexperienced one, but there's something, isn't there, that's about wisdom that doesn't require experience. Wisdom and experience are awesome together, but there's something about wisdom itself that isn't dependent on experience. He sees something that either those guys, their experience doesn't see, or something that those guys can't see because of their experience, that their experience blinds them to it. The centurion there, he's looking at the outside like most of us probably would. I've put myself in that position, I probably would. You know, he looks and he sees Paul, a spiritual man, a guy he respects, and then there's the other guy, the captain, who's been at sea all his life and he's not been in prison for the last two years. It's like, you haven't even seen the sea. Actually, maybe he did. Maybe he had a cell with a window he could look out of. But he doesn't know. But the thing is, the guy who has been in prison for two years, Paul, he knows wisdom itself. He knows Jesus. So remember the Bible says, Jesus is wisdom that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and that 
That doesn't mean that, okay, we've got this amazing experience guy and there's a Christian, so we should just do what they say because they know Jesus. Jesus, I'm not suggesting that. I think that's a particularly unwise thing to do. But there is something in that that does challenge us, is do we receive wisdom from unlikely sources? Are we ready for that? Are we ready for that? Are we humble enough for that? Are you in a situation where it's just like, actually only maybe the pastor or this person can give me the wisdom for that situation? That this person, they couldn't possibly give me wisdom for that situation. See, we may miss the wisdom that's keeping us from losing everything because it doesn't come packaged in a way that we're ready to receive, in a way that we feel is right. Maybe you feel, hey, I'm better than that person, so I don't feel I can really receive that th suggestion they're making. They couldn't possibly have wisdom for my situation. They sound really funny. I don't like their accent. I won't receive wisdom from them. They're too young. They're too young. They, they couldn't give me wisdom. Oh, they're from this country. Those guys don't know what they're talking about. They have less education than me. I don't feel I can receive that. On the flip side of the situation, maybe you're that person who really feels you have a wisdom for a certain situation, for a certain circumstance, but you just don't feel qualified enough. You don't feel experienced enough to share your opinion that maybe brings life and fullness of life to someone else. Maybe you're judging yourself and painting yourself with that same brush of not being good enough. And in the same way, maybe you are doing and painting others with that brush if you treat yourself like that. So Jesus, we think of Jesus, wisdom itself, he came in the lowliest form didn't he? The most lowliest form, that he came in as a member of the low class from the worst place in the country. He looked very normal. He wasn't a beautiful guy, it says. He's looking very normal. That's why I could never be Jesus. That's a joke. He's this Middle Eastern carpenter, right? He's not a member of this kind of great elite there who comes in and has all his wisdom and everyone expects him to have wisdom. No. See, God brings wisdom through things which are foolishness, through those people who don't look like they should have the solution. And so the centurion in that moment, he listens to the owners. The owners make a choice, don't they? He listens to the owners, he listens to the ship's captain, and they set sail to go up the coast to Phoenix. It's a choice that changes the fortunes of the ship owner forever. Okay, verses 13 to 19. It's a bit of an overview of the storm itself. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor, that means pulled it up, and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, that means it comes from the Northeast, that's like Turkey coming down, going down towards Morocco, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island, and the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. They're driven in the direction of the wind. They're being driven southwest. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, Cauda, if you know your geography there, that's called Gozo today. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. 
They lowered the sea anchor, let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Over the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. It's this desperate situation. They're chucking stuff off the boat. Seems like maybe they're taking on some water that they're trying to make the boat light. This is the route they're traveling. They set off, they're trying to come up here to Phoenix, but then the wind starts coming from up here and the boats in those days, they couldn't really, they couldn't really sail, it's called close to the wind, they couldn't really sail up that way. So they end up getting bashed and end up coming down, getting driven down here in the storm. And then it says in verse 20, it says this, it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared, for many days and the storm continued raging we finally gave up all hope of being saved we finally gave up all hope of being saved see following wisdom in your life will lead to life make wise decisions make wise decisions wisdom is the wellspring of life get counsel seek advice from people we're making big decisions just a sideline encouragement this ship okay it's got over 270 people they have given up hope of being saved no hope at all that's how bad it is that these guys are saying there is no hope we've tried there's no way there's no way out of this everything that we have tried everything that we have done has failed all our efforts has failed this storm is too big for us this storm is too big for our efforts this storm is too big for what i can do this storm is too big for this boat this storm is too big for the boat what's the boat it's the thing that they put their trust in it's the thing that they put their safety in the thing that's holding them there in the midst of the storm this storm will kill us you know there are people in situations all over the world today maybe some people here are in a situation like that and they're saying the same thing maybe you're here or you're listening to the podcast and that's you and i'm not talking about that you're on a boat somewhere listening to this maybe you are but that the storms of life you're looking at them and saying i've tried everything and there's no way out. Maybe it's faith and religion. You're saying, I've tried to get to God. I've tried to get to God. I've tried to get to God, but I just don't feel his presence. You've given up hope in your situation of being saved, of having life and hope come back into that situation. But I want to encourage you guys today that with God, there is always hope. And if just one person if one person doesn't fix their eye on the storm, but turns and fixes their eyes on God, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of hopeless, we're going to die. There's no hope of being saved. People can be saved. When Jesus and the disciples in another storm on another sea in another boat, and the storm's raging all around them on the Sea of Galilee, what do the disciples do? They call out to Jesus, save us, save us. No, it's only in him that the storm is quieted. And Paul goes along a very similar line. And there in the boat, I believe he seeks God. He seeks God. He calls out to God. And you're going to see what happens in a minute, Paul's experience. And here's the challenge. 
whatever the storm, whatever the storm, where is your hope? Where is your hope for being saved? Where's your hope for being saved? Where's your hope for breakthrough? Where is your hope for the dawn? Is it in your bank balance? Is it in your job? Is it in your stuff? Is it in somebody else? Is that your boat? Is that your boat? Because at some point, sometimes they're fine for a while, but at some point, those things always fail. But the storm at some point will sink it. Or is your boat God? Is your boat God? Is your hope in the storm in God? The only ship that no storm there ever was or ever will be would be able to sink. You can't be sunk. See, if your peace through the storm, if your peace through challenges and all these challenges in life, if they come from, let's take, for example, having enough money in your bank, what happens if the ship sinks? If that ship sinks, what happens if all your money disappears? It's very topical for Hong Kong. Can't step out your door without spending money. Church is free, by the way. That's a big storm. Suddenly losing all your money, that's a big storm. But it's nothing compared to the ultimate storm. What's the ultimate storm? The ultimate storm of being separated from God. See, God went to amazing lengths and at his expense and cost to save you and to bring you into a relationship with him. We have this crisis of eternity. Sure, we have crises in life, but we have this crisis of life, of eternal life. See, if God Almighty can make a way for us out of this spiritual death, this storm of total judgment, destined in that storm to spend eternity outside of his presence, if he freely gives us that life, if he freely captains our boat through that storm and brings us into eternity with him, how much more should we have hope for the far less difficult things? How much more should we have confidence in him for the smaller storms, like losing all your money? And I know right there in that moment, your eternity may not seem like such a big storm, but it really is. It really is way bigger than how much money you got in the bank. Losing all your money is a bad one, right? But if God can come through with your salvation, he can sort out your provision. He can sort out your provision. He can sort out your thriving. He can sort out your hope for any storm. Where is your hope for being saved? That word saved, sozo, that fullness of life. And I want to encourage you today, if you're in a storm today, if you're facing something today, and you've come to this point where you say, there is no hope. I have no hope. I want to encourage you that in him, there is always hope. His name is Jesus. There is always hope. Fix your eyes on him. Get in his presence. I'm going to read verse 21, 26. It says, After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. 
You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is an amazing section and there's a bunch of stuff in it. A few things. They haven't eaten for a long time. Remember that, we'll come to it later. They haven't eaten for a long, long time. Paul then has this kind of like, guys, I told you so kind of moment. And it's this very real moment where we see just the, the reality of choice and consequences. Choice and consequences. One of the most important lessons that we are taught as kids, something that we're always, if your parents here, you know, or aunts and uncles, you know, you teach, trying to teach kids is cause and effect, choice and consequences. Don't touch the oven. It's hot. Touch the oven, you get burnt. You know? Sometimes I click my fingers. Eliana turns to me and says, Daddy, that's a bad choice. I said, you're right. Okay. <laughs> so, sometimes it can backfire on you, that kind of thing. Sometimes people blame God you know, for stuff which really is the natural consequence of the choices that we've made or sometimes as well, someone else's choices and how they're affect affecting us. We've exercised as humans our God-given free will and choice, and there's a result. Making good choices as well is something, I think sometimes people don't always think about, but something that can really honor God in. You know, if we, we don't need to ask God about literally everything. Big decisions, go, go to God and it's great and you engage with him like a father asking advice, you know. But the stuff I asked my parents when I was three, if I was having to ask them the same questions today when I was 30, I'm older actually, 32, that they would have failed, you know. If Eliana's doing the same, when she, if she's asking me the same questions in another 30 years that she asked me now, I've messed up, you know, because we honor God when we make good choices, when we make good decisions. I don't need to ask God, like, what should I eat today? You know? He's given us wisdom. You can make wise choices and it brings life. The advice of the Egyptian owners of that ship and that ultimate choice by Julius the centurion, it ends up leading that ship and its cargo to being completely and utterly destroyed, doesn't it? They lose the ship eventually, you'll find that out. It's all gone. The passengers though on that ship, they didn't make any choice. They're in that situation because of the choice of Julius on the advice of the owner and the captain. They're in this situation where they're saying, there is no hope, we're gonna die because of the choices of others. If you had a storm, or if you are in a storm today though, either because of your choices or another person's choices, however far removed, I just wanna really encourage you guys. God is the savior. He is the redeemer. He is not the destroyer. He is not the accuser. Now the enemy, when you go through these kind of situations, is gonna try and he's gonna try and destroy you. He's gonna try and destroy you through the storm itself. He's gonna try and destroy you through regret, through self-accusation. Maybe even as I was sharing just before that, you were thinking, man, yeah, I'm in this situation and Maybe, yeah, it is my fault. And then you begin feeling self-accusation, making the bad choice. Maybe he tries to destroy you through hatred of another of what's been done to you. 
where you see the choices they've made and how that has hurt you. But I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage you in the storm. Look in the face of Jesus. Look to Jesus because in him is grace for yourself. In him is grace to forgive others. And by him, as you dwell in him, he is the way out of the storm. So make wise choices, guys. Get good counsel. Be humble. Be teachable. Seek advice. Seek wisdom. Because in that is life for you, but also life for others. You have those who are nearest and dearest to you. Make wise choices because bad choices you make can impact them as well. In verse 23, 26, then Paul speaks about this angel, doesn't he? We just read that. Paul speaks about this angel that appears to him who was from, and he uses these words, he says, who's from the God to whom I belong, to whom he belonged, and who he served. Who He says who I serve, who he served. Big challenge there. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Who do you serve? Do you serve yourself? Do you serve someone else? Do you serve a habit? Do you serve a hobby? Or do you serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? See, in the storm, always remember who you belong to. Always remember whose man you are, whose woman you are, that you are a child of of God. It doesn't mean you won't go through storms, but always remember who you belong to in the storm. And the angel encourages Paul, doesn't he? And he encourages Paul by telling him he's going to be okay. He says it's going to be okay. And by saying, look, you need to stand trial before Caesar. And you may remember Jesus appeared to Paul a number of chapters ago and tells Paul, you've got to testify about me in Rome. See, what cod, what God, what cod, what, it's a very seafaring thing. Ah, it's cod. <laughs> what God speaks, that would be amazing if a cod spoke as well though, wouldn't it? What God speaks will come to pass. What God speaks over you will come to pass. Maybe there's stuff, you're in a storm right now and you're like, ah, can't get an image of, you know, the singing bass out of my head at the moment. You know, what God speaks over you, and maybe what you've had spoken over your life or over your situations, will come to pass. And that's one thing that can give us great confidence. That's for us as a church, can give us great confidence in Hong Kong, that we didn't just feel like, hey, let's go and start a church in Hong Kong. God said, go to Hong Kong, start a church. He gave us specific words, specific insights. I know victory will come not because I'm great or you're great. We're not that great, are we? But because he's great, because he said it. I know one day we're going to see churches planted from Destiny Hong Kong around Asia, and I hope the world, not because that's something I kind of think, oh, yeah, that'd be nice to do, but because God has said that about who we are. It's in our identity. He's calling that out of us. The angel then says this. He says, he says this interesting thing, weird thing actually. He says this thing where he says that the Lord has given the lives on board to Paul. And I really think, you know, that whilst everyone's freaking out and losing hope, I believe Paul is wrestling in prayer. It goes in with his character, goes in with just who he is, who we see him revealed to be through scripture, that he's getting in the presence of God and an angel appears to him. So in the storms we face is our first port of call. Pardon the pun. It was our first port of call 
It's the first place we go. It's the place that we camp, a place of fervent prayer and worship. Or we run to the edge of the boat and gaze out upon the storm and be hypnotized and entranced by the potential disaster. Or do we fix our eyes on him in prayer and worship? And there's another challenge here as well. Are we wrestling in prayer in life, in our storms, in our good times? Are we wrestling in prayer for the lives of those who are around us? How many minutes and hours do we spend in the week praying for those around us, praying for those who are going through storms themselves, whether in church or out of church, doesn't matter. How many hours and minutes do we give to praying for those who are in the ultimate storm, who don't know him, who are lost out on that sea, who need him? You know, Abraham, he so loved people, didn't he? He bargains with God. We see Abraham having this bargaining thing with God because he wants Sodom to be saved. Paul so loves people that he pursues this life of ministry to see people come into the kingdom of God, to see people discover Christ. And so even when we, and here's the most challenging one, even when we are in the, most, in the deepest heart of the storm, Let's never be too preoccupied with the coming dangers or the disasters that are potentially befalling us. Let's never be too preoccupied with ourselves, our hardships, that we forget to ask for the lives of those around us, potentially going through it. Our cities, our communities, our families. So often these big challenges in life, they actually happen to multiple people all at once. Can we be the way out? Verse 27 to 32, the shipwreck. On the 14th night, we were still being drawn across the Adriatic. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings. That means they see how deep the water is. And found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, that's the back, and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to put some anchors out from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope and held the boat and let it drift away this kind of little part this section it's this great example of the divine meeting the very human the very normal it, it it's not this weird superstitious thing that god's like i'll save you if everyone's on board you know that kind of thing i don't know if you ever played it as kids like don't stand on the crack otherwise you break your leg or something weird like that it's not this weird superstitious thing where it's where it's a conditional saving god's not saying jump through these hoops do this stuff and you will be saved Christianity is divine, but it's also very real. It's very practical. See, God promises this salvation to everyone on the ship if all the sailors are there. But you see, the practical part is if all the sailors leave, then there's no one on the ship to sail the boat. There won't be the experience to actually fulfill and carry out and do what God has spoken about. There won't be the experience to actually do what needs to be done. These sailors, they could have easily saved themselves, got in that boat, got away. They're professional sailors, but everyone else on the boat would die. And here's the challenge. Are there times when we need 
to sometimes stay on a shipwreck or a boat that's getting wrecked a little longer because maybe we're the only ones with the skills and experience to save the others there. Are we God's chosen instrument for that moment, for that situation? Verse 33 to 38, it says, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. He broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Paul, the prisoner, now seems to be the guy calling the shots. He seems to be the guy in charge. You know, God can bring us from a place or bring us up into a place of leadership during a storm. Why is that? Well, because if we follow Paul's example, very often we're the last one standing. He's the only one, potentially Luke and Aristarchus too, but he's the only one who has hope in something greater than their circumstances. What's it say he has? He has courage. He has courage. Paul has courage because of God, because he is standing on the word of God that's been spoken to him about their storm. What does he have? He's got courage. He has faith. See, let your courage come from faith. Let your courage come from faith. Faith in what he's speaking about the situation, not fear about what the situation looks like. See, that kind of courage that stands on God and stands on God's word, it's infectious. And all 276 people, they seem, or 275, they seem to catch that. And it says that these guys who have just previously been saying, we lost all hope. That's discouragement, right? They lost all hope of life, all hope of being saved. They are encouraged. Where before they had no hope and only Paul had courage, these people catch that infectious courage that comes from faith in God. I want to encourage you guys that your courage in him can help others have courage. Your courage in him can help others have courage. And sometimes it may look nuts and there's no good solid grounding for your courage but your courage isn't in your situation, your courage or circumstance, your courage is in him. And Paul says to them, you haven't eaten, right? You haven't eaten because you've been in suspense, you've been anxious, you've had this nervousness, so you haven't eaten. They're afraid, right? From that, he's saying, you haven't eaten. It sounds like Paul has, I think he's scoffed himself, but he's been eating. They're on this gigantic grain ship, remember, this huge grain ship filled with plenty that in the midst of the storm, there's all the provision they could have ever needed. And Paul encourages them to eat. Then they all eat. They eat their fill. Imagine if you hadn't eaten 14 days, you're going to be eating a lot, you know. They eat their fill. There's so much grain, so much resource, so much provision there that 
They have to chuck it all off the side at the end. They have to empty grain and all this stuff and wealth out into the sea. There's just too much of it for their needs. See, in God, in the midst of the storm, there is always enough. His grace is sufficient. His provision is sufficient. See, all those guys who pretty much starved themselves, they could have eaten. They could have eaten. But fear starved them. Anxiety starved them. And Paul says, basically, you've been so worried, guys, you haven't eaten. Fear starved them, but faith fed them. Fear starved them, but faith fed them. If you're in a storm today, have courage in him that he's going to take you through. And don't be starved. Don't be starved of your joy. Don't be starved of your peace by fear, but be full. Be fed. Be fed with peace. Be fed with joy by faith. See, there's a difference between going through a storm, laughing and praising God and having courage that God is going to see you through, that he's going to take you through. And then there is also going through a storm as a believer saying, yeah, I have this kind of hope in God. I believe in God. I love God. But then going through it totally anxious, totally in fear. Because you know, guys, the truth of it is, and I know situations can be scary, but the truth of it is in some part of us when we're anxious and when we fear when we're in that place, there's some part of us that says, maybe God won't come through for me. Maybe he won't come through for maybe. Maybe this storm will destroy me. Have courage. And remember, it all starts from getting in his presence in the storm. Paul's not looking out of, over the gunnels, looking at the tempest. He's in his presence and he's speaking to an angel in the storm. Going to that last part, it says, when daylight came, 39 to 41, it says, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the end, at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. That takes good seamanship. That takes sailors. Good job the sailors are still on board. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not be moved, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. They go through this whole storm here for like a lot of days, over a couple of weeks, and then they find themselves here beaching on uh, Malta. They're there, the ship's being broken apart. If you imagine that, they've run aground, the ship suddenly, it's all coming apart at the back. Water's gonna be coming in at, lower, at the lower decks. And it says this, verse 42 to 44, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everybody, everybody reached land safely. So just like Paul said, just like the angel had spoken to Paul, the owners, they lose everything. They lose 
all their money, all their wealth. The cargo's gone, the ship's gone, but they, their lives are saved. The soldiers then, they want to kill the prisoners. They want to kill them all. And that means Paul as well, remember, because he's a prisoner. It's like, ungrateful. <laughs> Why did the soldiers want to do that? Why did the soldiers want to do that? To put a, a bit of kind of cultural background to it, if a prisoner escaped from a Roman soldier, the Roman soldier paid with his life. So if one of those prisoners escaped, the soldier would be executed. So letting the prisoners swim to shore is effectively these soldiers putting their lives in the prisoners' hands. But Julius, because he wants to save Paul, he says no, commands them not to. It's this brilliant reversal. If we take Paul and we take Julius, so at the beginning of that chapter, you've got Paul and Paul's life is really in, the, in Julius's hands. He is the captain. He's under his guard, under his arrest. And then we have this amazing reversal where suddenly Julius puts his life in Paul's hands. You know that if Paul escapes, Julius is done for. The difference is the centurion, Julius, he chooses to put his life in Paul's hands. It's this amazing picture, this beautiful picture of Christ that we all are invited into, that we would put our lives into Jesus's hands, that even when the ship that we've put all of our hope in, whatever that thing may be, is being broken apart under our feet, we're called to put our lives in the ultimate ship, Jesus. Jesus is the ship that carries us through the storm of death, through the storm of separation from God into the haven of life, eternal life. Jesus is the ark. You all know the story of Noah's ark. Jesus is the ark that Noah rode, that brings humanity through the waters of destruction, the waters of God's wrath and judgment, the ultimate storm into new life. This whole chapter, chapter 27, here right near the end of Acts is this beautiful picture of the inevitable storm that every single person on earth has either faced or is facing. Everyone's going to face it. The storm of our separation from God that only the one true captain, the storm captain, Jesus, only he can pilot us, can navigate us, through it. See, as Jonah, remember Jonah, he's thrown off the boat into the sea because of his sin. So too Jesus is thrown like Jonah into a storm, but not for his sin, for our sin, to quieten the storm. Jesus goes through the ultimate storm of separation from God on the cross. He pays the price for sin so that those who would make him captain, so that those who would step aboard his boat, so that in him he could steer us to eternal life. Who is your captain? Who is your captain? You or him? You or him? Who's your boat? Something? Some stuff? Or him? So I just want to challenge you is who are you trusting? in the storm. Who are you trusting in the storm? That's the ultimate storm. That's the storm of your life. That's the biggest question anyone can ask is, who's captain of your ship? Who is your ship? 
And also, who are you trusting in the various storms of life? What are you trusting in the various storms of life? God or you or your stuff or someone else? Do you let God, the divine, speak through human means? Or have you just kind of discounted that, that everything's got to be like flashing lights and super spiritual, otherwise it doesn't ever happen? Are you seeing the joy and the beauty of God's grace pouring into your life and the normal every day? Maybe today, if, you're in the, if you are in a storm today, I want to encourage you, get in his presence and let courage rise in you. Not manufactured, but a courage that stands grounded in faith on him. Don't be starved by fear, but be fed by faith. If that's you, if there's a storm around you at the moment, I want you just focus your faith on him. Make a decision today. Take your eyes from the edge of your boat, looking out on the storm and fix your eyes on him. Doesn't mean the storm's going to go away, but make your focus him. Let that courage rise and be fed through the storm. Let your joy manifest in the storm. Let your peace rest on you in the storm. Who's the captain of your ship, you or him? Because only he knows the way. He said, I am the way. I am the way. So if you're here today or you're listening to the podcast and you want to make that decision, maybe you've been listening and you're thinking, hey, I don't know Jesus. He said, I'm going through a whole bunch of storms in my life. when you said about him being captain of my ship, I want him to be that storm captain. I want him to come aboard my life. I encourage you, there is no better decision than to start a voyage with him today. And so I just want to pray. I want to pray. And if this is you, just say this in your heart after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for going through the ultimate storm of God's punishment over my sin for me, so I don't have to. I thank you for being cast into the ultimate storm for my sin, that I may know you and freely live in the clear skies and calm sea of your love, your fellowship, and above all, your presence that I can live in your presence. I choose to follow you today. I choose to voyage with you today. I choose to make you captain of my ship, my life, today. Amen. Now, if that was you and you're here, come and speak to me afterwards. If that's you and you're listening on the podcast, send me an email. Let me know you prayed that. I'd love to connect with you.